Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Panama Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Uh, really great to be with you all. Hope you're all doing well. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show uh, and someone I've connected with in uh, the last few weeks and who's doing incredible work. And I can't wait to have them on the show. Uh, Dr. Robin, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. I I wish that we could be in person having a cup of tea together, but COVID, COVID makes that impossible. Yeah. I know it's a shame. I really, I really wish that. Uh, I really wish we could uh, be meeting up and hanging out in person. And yeah, I haven't had a cup of tea for ages, actually. I mean, I'm from London, but I don't drink. I, I, I do drink tea, but I don't have it very often. Mm, I just finished a a cup of Lapsang, uh, Chinese black tea. It's a really smoky tea. I, I like the robust smoky teas. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, I'm more traditional, I guess, <laughs> in teas. <laughs> I like. Uh, I just like normal breakfast tea. Yeah, um, you know, and we put we put the milk in afterwards as well. After right. The bag. I know that in the states they put the bag, they put the milk in first or something. Right. Feels just wrong when you're from England. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those cultural differences. Probably. Um, so, Dr. Robin is a transport activist, a Latinist scholar, and a public theologian, uh, doing incredible work. Uh, and yeah, I can't wait to uh, to hear their story. So, um, yeah, Dr. Robin, tell us your story. Well, I the story I want. I, I'm a storyteller. I could tell lots of stories, but I think the story that I want to start with, just to get into our conversation and to have some traction for this episode is the story of me leaving my faculty post in Berkeley, California after the 2016 election and moving home to the American South. Um, Obviously the 2016 election was a global upset, not just a U.S. upset, but a real global upset. And, you know, I really found myself, wondering how do I create the world a better place? Um, how do I, how do I steward liberation as a theologian and ethicist? And so I left my faculty post. I was teaching at a seminary in Berkeley, California. I packed up my Prius because every good radical drives a hybrid car. And I packed it up with my iMac and my clothes and my books, everything that I could fit in the car. And, drove to Nashville and make home on land that was stewarded by our Native American siblings, the Cherokee, the Uchi, and the Shawnee. And I work here trying to build a better world. I ended up launching my academic scholarship as a collaborative project. That's called the Activist Theology Project. And we're dedicated to social healing through storytelling I am on faculty at Duke Divinity School, so I, I still do have a foot in the in the academy, in the theological academy, um, but I spend most of my work in the public square translating theory to action, trying to connect the dots for people. Um, so that's a little bit about me, about what I'm doing, and um, you know, thank goodness for Twitter, it brings people together, and we connected after I came out about being on the autism spectrum and, you know, really grateful to have broadened my community, my global community 
with people who are just trying to do good in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's how, that's, that's how we connected. I remember because, um, a few of my friends followed you and, um, shared your, your coming out in terms of, um, the autism spectrum. Yeah. And that I've talked about a lot and I talk about mental health on this show a lot and I'm on, I'm on the spectrum myself. Um, yeah, I just, I think I just offered some support, I think. And then we just started talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I was really grateful for because, you know, the reason I came out about being on the autism spectrum is, um, the stigma, you know, there's so much stigma around autism and, you know, I can't help that my brain works differently, but I wanted to come out to reduce the stigma for people who maybe have a different level of functioning than I do. Um, and that's part of stewarding um, equity and liberation in the world, as I see it, is coming out about um, the way our bodies work, the way our brains work, coming out about mental health um, experiences, and really normalizing these things that have been so pathologized by the medical community. Yeah, I agree. We, Yeah, I, I said it multiple times on this show that there is so much stigma uh, around these things uh, and we need to be honest about these things and no yeah like normalize them like you say it's because yeah like, i mean i love the way you said that it's just our brains work differently yeah that's all there's nothing wrong with us we just our brains must work a little differently and that's right. that's fine there's nothing wrong with that yeah yeah um yeah, I mean, how how is how is coming out about that changed you? Well, you know, I think that um, about ten years ago, I um, I had a partner, and and she was working with children living with autism. And, you know, I looked up the the symptoms for adults living with autism, and, I, and it, they all really resonated with me. And I asked my partner, do you think this is true for me? And and she said, no, you're too smart. You, you know, you're too fun- high functioning. And so there's some grief, actually, coming into this awareness, because I could have I could have known this a decade ago. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just kind of wonder, how many people have I harmed? because my brain works differently and I didn't know it. So while there has been some freedom in coming into this awareness and my current partner is fabulous and, you know, really um, applauds me for digging into myself and taking the step to really find out this diagnosis. Um there's some grief there because, you know, my brain works differently. That means that I move differently in the world than neuronormative people. And so I just wonder about the harm that I've caused. And, you know, I worry about that. But for the most part, my experience of coming out has been applauded and people have said that I'm brave and, People have really supported me and said, if there's anything I need, like yourself, you know, um, have just come alongside me to to say I'm here. And that has been wonderful. Um, but I still live with that grief, that little bit of grief, you know, mm-hmm. that 
I could have known a decade ago uh, that my brain works differently and maybe I could have had a different, more, less tenuous 10 years, you know? Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I, 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 I suspected I was on the spectrum long before I actually figured it out or somebody told, or an expert told me. Mm-hmm. I kind of figured it out because my sister worked with people with, um, in mental health institutions and she worked with people with, with severe mental health problems and she knew all about the symptoms. And yeah. she spotted it in me long before anybody else did. And uh, and then I started, like you, I started, as I started to study it, I thought, hmm, yeah, this is this this makes a lot of sense and it explains a lot. Uh, and like I mean, it's the same in a way. I I realize actually that maybe some of the times I'd hurt people, or uh, well, when I got frustrated because of my condition and I hadn't really understood what it was, so I wasn't able to do anything about it. Right. Um, it was definitely a grieving in that. In that, you know, I could have done something. I wish I'd known so that I could have taken yeah. some action. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I so I, I feel very similarly. You know that. My, my, um, my shut the way I shut down or the way I get irritable, um, you know, there's a reflection of how my brain works, not my reflection of how much I care for the person. And, and I, I, you know, I'm just trying to do the work now of being honest with myself and, and one another, uh, to avoid mishaps. And, you know, like, just like I put on Twitter and on Instagram today, intimacy is the measure of our freedom in these trying times. And so if we can steward intimacy in our relationships and with ourselves, I think we can build a better world. And while I grieve that I could have known this 10 years ago, I try not to dwell too much in that space because I think it prevents me from creating folds of intimacy with people that's right yeah and i I talked about grief a lot on this show as well um i mean i've got a and you won't know this but people who listen will know um i lost my mother 20 years ago and so i've been on a big a long grief journey and in particular the last five five or six years i've um i've done a lot of inner work on that and transformation and things and yeah, if you if you sit in grief too much, it can overpower you and control you. Mm-hmm. And any kind of grief, I mean, not just losing a loved one, but of leaving a leaving a life behind, or of right. like the whole or the kind of grief you're talking about. Right. Of what what could I have done? You know, what could what could I have done? Or, or those things I wish I'd done that I hadn't done, or things that I did that I wish I hadn't done. Yeah. Uh, and that's grief, and so it's important that we acknowledge it. That's the beginning of change, but uh, but staying in it and letting it let it control you isn't isn't healthy. Yeah, you know, I think about the serenity prayer. Um, mm. I accept the things that I cannot change, and this is one of the things that I can't change. I can't change the way that I have behaved in the past, um, but now I know why, and. I try to steward the best forms of relationship now and and thank goodness you know I have community that is supporting me you know but but 
I want to step back and talk about, at least in this country, the number of deaths that have resulted from COVID and and the collective mm-hmm. grief that this country has not yet been able to participate in. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I want to hold space for the societal grief that is coming and and our global grief as we grieve a global pandemic. You know, many of us have never lived through a pandemic and um, there is a lot of grief associated with that. And so I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to turn off grief too much because I want to leave space for the present mm. grief that, that is oh, yeah. really here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very aware of that. It really has been one collective grief experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, the thing that I've been yeah. saying is that we are all trauma bonded. Yeah, we are. I mean, that's, that's, that's a hundred percent correct. Yeah, we are. I had I spoke to another person for this show, and he and he said to me that uh, there's ne- there's never been one single thing which can connect every single person in the world, right. pretty much um, before. The, but this has this is like you mm-hmm. could go pretty much to any country in the world, and you would and you could talk about the pandemic, and you'd have that in common because you both you'd all experienced it, you know. Right. Um, and you know, I mean, in this country, the UK, we've got the I think it's the worst number of deaths per million person in the world. You know, obviously, it's not the same numbers as the states because right. we're not a big country, but per million people, we've had a lot of deaths, mm-hmm. and it's been poorly managed. Um, probably not as badly managed as, as America, um, unfortunately, but uh, still pretty badly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just a lot of collective grieving. Like everyone is grieving, not just people that have, they've lost, but jobs and right. relationships and being able to stay at home and routines. And, um, yeah, there's just so much grief, and we have to learn how to grieve well. It's so important. Um, yeah. You know, you, you talk about the mismanagement of – coronavirus in the UK and we have also had a mismanagement of of coronavirus mm. and you know as the global community knows you know um and we've also had a presidential election and that's still up for you know debate for some people but you know we we as a global community i think we don't know how to be human with one another. And I think that's why we've seen the mismanagement of human lives with coronavirus. And how do we steward our human community? How do we stitch together relationships and intimacy and connection in a way that helps us be human with one another? I, that's really what I want to see come out of this pandemic. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a chance to reconnect with each other. Yeah. And with ourselves. And with ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's like this It's one thing that this pandemic has done is kind of amplify everything. Mm-hmm. And it's amplified the worst of capitalism. Oh, yes. 
um, so much because there's like in this country and this country in America and the UK and America are probably the worst for this because they're the most they're capitalist countries yeah. like um, you know built on this kind of systemic racism and you know um, colonialism and all of that they've got the same background DNA and they're the ones that are handling it worst you know yeah, it's, yeah. And it's, it's I see so many people putting money and profit and jobs and economy over human life, which right. is just like, I can't comprehend how rational, intelligent human beings do that. I just, it's just kind of, yeah, it's just abhorrent to me that whole, that whole perspective. And it's, it's just exposed. This is the, this is the culture that we built in like in the last 40 years, you'd think, you know, um, yeah. and yeah, so people are kind of indoctrinated into thinking this way, and it's just terrifying. Well, and, you know, you talk about capitalism, and I, I talk a lot over here in the American South about how we how we do relationships, and so much of our relationships are based in a capitalistic mindset, that it's just a transaction, one transaction after another, instead of a relationality that actually rooted in compassion and love for your neighbor and connection, right? We, we actually, we actually would rather have a transaction over a connection. Yeah. 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 That's right. It's so true. I, and I see this even in like, one of the things I, I um, talk about with people sometimes is, the art of conversation, you know, I mean, doing a podcast, you know, people talk to me about my, yeah, my podcast and how good I am at podcasting and, and everything. And one of the things that I always tell people is, um, is that we've lost the art of conversation. We've mm-hmm. lost the art of Absolutely. somebody and listening to what they're saying, right? Really listening and then responding to what they're saying rather than I'm going to sit here and wait and let you talk. And then I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Yeah. So, already decided what i'm going to say so i'm not paying attention to you you know and we've kind of gone in that's how it's become right like in the transactional kind of culture it's like you talk then i talk it's not it's not actually i'm going to just listen to you and then wait and see what you say and then respond to that it's just that i've got something to say and i'm going to say it either way and that's not that's not healthy we need to I mean, we need to learn the art of conversation again absolutely and what you say about listening, I think, is the point of connection. If we really learn how to listen with one another to to one another with empathy, then that is the place of connection that draws us together in a relationality that is not based in transactions. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so. It sounds so revolutionary, and yet it should be just how things are but unfortunately it's not yeah i know i mean it's not yeah you're right it's not um and it's really sad that it's not yeah Uh, but yeah i mean i guess like we said the pandemic has amplified things and maybe if we can draw some good from it is that is is that we learn these lessons of what we've become and start doing something about it. Well, and I think this is a first step of connecting, building relationship, 
that is not based in the polarization of politics, but actually trying to steward connection. I, I mean, I, I kind of feel like that's what we're doing here. We we connected about the autism, and now we're having a really beautiful conversation about how to be better in the world and how can how can we amplify this practice so that other people engage in the practice of connection so that we can try to heal one another. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's an opportunity. There is an opportunity. It's one of the things I've learned from grief is that it's painful and it's awful. And I would, you wouldn't wish it on anybody. Uh, but it is an opportunity as well to, to, to be transformed um, and to, to connect with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I tweeted today, grief is connection mm-hmm. in a way. It's forming, because I've, I've learned to grieve while I've connected more with my mother, my, my late mother, um, more, and connected with myself, and feel more connected to all to everything. It's... It's really amazing, and it's difficult to describe for somebody who's not who's not who's not experienced it. But uh, that's my hope, I guess, from this time is that we take this opportunity to learn to connect with each other again. Yeah, and how many of us who are living through this global pandemic? I think about essential workers who don't have the time to sit and grieve. You know, because mm-hmm. they're having to punch a clock at Trader Joe's or at Whole Foods or at Walmart or at Target. Um, they don't have the time to grieve. And and I worry about that community of essential workers who have been creating conditions for all of us to be able to get our groceries during this time or I think about the postal workers who are delivering the mail. Um, you know, we how do we steward connection with essential workers so that they can have access to grief? Mm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, those those people have been real heroes this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we've seen how much we rely on them. You know, and yeah, I'm really grateful for those people. Um, you know, my one of my close family is uh, is a refuse um, refuse guy, so he has to go out every morning and collect waste, which is high, which puts him at high risk of yeah. catching the, the of catching the virus. Uh, and uh, and you know, I'm I'm kind of blown away by by him really this year he's been amazing uh you know because it's not because we, we you know they're the kind of people that if then if they're not there we all we all know it we all yeah and maybe we took them for granted for too long and uh we shouldn't well, i know that this country has seen what it's like for refuse folks to go on strike. Um, that's the last thing we need because we we don't need an airborne virus and also 
loads of trash piling up, you know, and bacteria and whatnot. And so, you know, these essential workers, um, the people who pick up trash, the people um, who deliver our mail, the people who um, work in grocery stores, um, these are all people who I think, you know, there there's kind of a fragile humanity and and yet the these and I'm not calling them fragile as in weak, but they're fragile in the sense of they're so close to the virus. Mm. And how mm. do we treat these people with the love, respect, and dignity that they deserve to help create some distance from the virus that they have? Yeah, and yeah, that's right. We have to think about these things so much more. And I don't think, I mean, James, I don't think that we're thinking about people in a holistic way. I think many of us are still thinking about ourselves. Yeah. And we are grieving the fact that we can't go to the club, that we can't go to the bar, uh, that we can't go out to eat, whatever you know, people are grieving. And it's so self-centered. And and yet that is the culture that we have created. We're, and we're all complicit in it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's right. We're all, we're all complicit in that. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's really easy to get, to get sucked in, isn't it? It's really yeah. easy to just kind of forget that there's real people, real stories behind, behind everything. Right. Behind everything, every book you order on Amazon, there's somebody who packs it up and somebody who, who delivers it, and you know, and they happen to be out there. Yeah. And yeah, and we we can take those things for granted rather than express first expressing gratitude, but also having a world where their emotional and mental needs are met and where they're allowed to process grief in a healthy way. Right. Um, it should be something that we all get taught how to do mm-hmm. because um, it's because so much of certainty, which is such a problem, is is a way. To, uh, certainty is kind of a way to suppress grief and suppress pain and trauma and to just kind of act like they, they didn't happen. Right, uh, and it gives the illusion that you've dealt with it when actually you haven't, and it's actually. Right. Yeah. And this is the culture of that we've created. This is what capitalism does. It creates it's about certainty. You know, it's um and that's just really dangerous. Absolutely. I and I you know, I know that many of us have house payments or rent and and we want to continue to be able to pay those those bills. Um but I think about how capitalism has displaced so many people um, because there's no grace to grief. You know, I think about, I think about um, here in Nashville, Tennessee, the homeless community. I, I work with an organization called open table Nashville and open table works to advocate for those who, who are without housing. And during the winter months, I canvass the streets and help the homeless get into shelters. And then I drive the van to transport 
them to to get into shelters. And I think about this community in particular, which there's a global community of underhomed people. And capitalism continues to displace people. And so this global unhoused community is growing. I I remember seeing a statistic early on during the coronavirus pandemic of the number of people who have lost their housing because they can't pay their rent. And I think to myself, why don't we have grace anymore with people? Like we are all, we're all enduring this together. Why perpetuate capitalism? Why perpetuate the disconnection and the displacement of capitalism instead of nurturing one another and providing grace during these times? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. You'd think that something like a global pandemic would stir people into action. You right. know, it's, you know, it's uh, that's what's been one of the most frustrating things of this year is, is seeing like seeing people's responses to the pandemic is yeah. to, it, because some people are so entrenched in certainty and so afraid of processing their grief and so indoctrinated into not processing their grief that they turn to conspiracy theories and they turn to um like they say oh it's not that bad or it's or it's scaremongering or it's you know that or that this has come to a big plot to uh to keep us in our homes and oppress us right. you know actually there's nothing wrong uh and i see this in the i see this in the uk i don't know what it's like in america but i've seen this from from fellow british people and it's just shocking. It's like, no, this is really serious, and you need to do something about it because, like, these kind of people are making it worse. Because there's people that are going out without masks on. There's people that are going out and not socially distancing and acting like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the problem. It's just yeah. when they should be just like saying, okay, we're in this. This is a serious problem. We all need to make sacrifices, and we need to reach out to those people who really need us. Well, you know, I don't know about in the UK who are the people not wearing masks and going out, but here in the US, the majority of the people who are going out without masks, having gatherings, are groups of white supremacy. Yeah. So they are largely hate groups. Yeah. And and what worries me about that is that we have, you know, I talk a lot about um, supremacy culture and, and white supremacy culture. We have created a cultural body that is rooted in the violence of white supremacy. And even there was a plot to, to kidnap the governor of, of Michigan. I don't know if y'all caught that news, but this was a plot by by several white supremacist groups who were upset that Michigan was on lockdown because the governor of Michigan was trying to keep the people of Michigan safe because of coronavirus. And so there is a there is a real threat to human flourishing because people and when I say people I'm referring to 
largely violent hate groups within the realms of white supremacy groups, yeah. that those groups are stewarding a dogma of, of death. It's, it's a death cult. And I don't know if this, if this country in the U S is able to grieve the, the fact that we are all conscripted into this death cult. We really don't care about life affirming systems or life affirming institutions. We care more about whether or not we can um, pay the bills, whether we can go out um, in, in, in society and, and, and and yet we're all peddling this death cult narrative, mm. which is really scary, I think. It is, yeah. And I've, I've got a lot of American friends, and I've seen some of those videos of um, people out protesting, you know, people out there doing worship services, you know, mm-hmm. Christian worship services without masks on. Right. And not social distancing in public. You know, and you know these protests and stuff like that. Where white, it's always white people. Always, it's always white people, and often white evangelicals. And, right. Uh, and yeah, just because it's like, oh, you can't tell me what to do, or you can't take away my freedom. You know, I'm being persecuted for my faith. Like what? And I'm like, you, right. you're not being persecuted for your faith if you're being asked to wear a mask. Okay. And to be honest, a white person saying they're being persecuted for their faith is kind of the most privileged thing that somebody can say. Yeah. Um, because there's just no way that, that a white person could go and go through anything like the kind of oppression that um, black people have and native and all of all those all those kind all those groups have been through. Yeah. Uh, because of the system that was created to oppress them. And right. yeah. And yeah, it is scary. You're right. It is really scary. Because I think that if we don't begin to steward a narrative about life and the flourishing of all, of all things, including animals, I mean, we haven't even talked about climate science or the ways in which we're hurting our environment. Um, but yeah. if we don't begin really stewarding a narrative around life and flourishing, I don't know that we will be able to actually engage in a healthy process of grief. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things that we're not doing. We're not doing well. Yeah. The climate change thing as well. Like that baffles me even more in a way because, because the, the, the science is just there. Right. It's not like you can question it. It's there. You know, the data is there. It's very clear, you know, uh, of what's going on and what we've been doing and what the consequences could be. Yeah. And it just, I, I, it just, it's hard to get my head around it when people just don't acknowledge it or don't recognize it or deny it. Um, well, yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, I'm of the opinion that the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is not the best thing. Like it's better than what we had, but but it's it's not going to create the kind of change that many of us want to see. 
Um, and so I really worry about people in this country who who really believe that we have a two-party system to talk about politics for a minute. Um, I think that we need to re-envision the ways that we do politics here because I don't know that our political system or our political future is stewarding a narrative of life for all persons. Mm. Yeah, that's right. We have, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that there is that the two, we have a two party system here as well in a, in a way in the UK, but it's even more pronounced in America. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who don't feel represented and, you know, who are speaking, like speaking about these serious issues which need to be confronted and don't get listened to, you know, and not enough action is taken. Right. Uh, and often politics gets in the way of that, but there should be a way of, it needs somebody to come in and actually just get around the system, play the system and get, get that change done and i mean it's oh yeah politics is complicated um i mean in this country there's already we're actually starting to see the leading progressive party kind of talk about um changing our electoral system because because they've lost basically they've lost four general elections three general elections in a row four sorry four and um we've had a we've had a right-wing government for 10 years and mm-hmm. we haven't got another election till 2024. So uh, they're thinking about, like, and, and in their, and in some of those elections, they've got a lot, they've got a lot of the vote, but that hasn't been represented in what they've in the, in kind of the outcome and right. like the electoral college system in America, which is, you know, completely flawed and doesn't represent like, it's not the person with the most votes that always wins. Like in 2016, Donald Trump right. didn't get the best votes and he won. Right. Uh, and yeah, those systems need to be overhauled. They need to be they need to be more representative and more democratic. And yeah, and I mean in America, I know there's a lot of voter suppression as well, which is oh yeah, and that needs to be dealt with. You know, and, uh, yeah. Well, and you know, you talk about becoming more democratic. I'm actually writing about that right now in my new book around bodies and embodiment, and. Basically, my thesis is if we can become more embodied with ourselves and with one another, we can shift our culture. And this embodiment can be a new vision for democracy. And yet, we don't know how to be in relationship with ourselves or with one another. This goes back to my earlier comment about we don't know how to be human with one another. Yeah. Yeah, it was all connected, isn't it? I mean, I'm working on a book as well and I think part of it is going to be you know grief facing our grief facing our trauma facing our imperfections and actually using that as a as a way to as a way to as a driving force behind transformation and that can be personal transformation and cultural transformation and political transformation yes um and that's kind of what I'm going to be talking writing about in this book and yeah, it's kind of kind of yeah, it's kind of the same point, isn't it? That there's an opportunity here to really change, you know, not just ourselves but our culture and our politics. Yeah, uh, and we just have to take it. Yeah, uh, 
that that's what I'm trying to do with all of my spare time is create conditions for more connection, for more intimacy, for more relationship. I think the better we are able to be in relationship, the better our political future will be. The more transformation can occur. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, I, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like when you when you've been there and you've seen it, and I've seen this at work in my own life. This whole process, you can start to you start to feel like, oh wow, this could be. Imagine if everyone did this. Imagine if we created a world like this. Imagine if we created a culture like this and a political system like this. You know, uh, it would just be so, it would be just different to, to anything that we've seen and it would be a much better world. Mm-hmm. I agree. Maybe, maybe James, you should write a vignette for my book and and talk about, relationships and embodiment from a UK perspective so that we can broaden the narrative around the future of democracy. Yeah. I'd love that. That'd be great. Yeah. And that way that's more connection and, and more love and justice in the world. You know, I'm, I'm really trying, I, I'm not a big fan of a single narrative. Um, I think that we've really harmed ourselves by, following cult figures or personality cult figures um, where a single narrative is what is privileged. And so what I try to do in my work is get a multiplicity, multiplicity of narratives because there, when, when we see a multiplicity of voices, yeah, we see the beauty that is possible. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's amazing how how that capitalism seeps in. Yeah. Into, even in the small things, doesn't it? It's um yeah. It's uh, it's incredible, you know. Um <laughs> uh how that it, it just shows you because this that that was that was kind of that was really ramped up in the 80s. And that's when I was growing up. That's when yeah. I was a child, you know, in the eighties and nineties. And so, you just that you, that just becomes normal. That just becomes indoctrinated into you. You just don't think there's anything different, right? And and now that's playing out because all those people are becoming adults. Yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's 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 tragic, but it's also but it is fascinating to see just how much that seeps into every part of your DNA and how much we have to unlearn. Oh, yeah, that's in this country. There's so much to unlearn. And so my, my, I'm a mixed race Latinx. My mom's family is from Mexico. My dad's family is from Texas, but with Scottish heritage. Um, and, you know, there's, when I look at the Mexican culture that is very close to my heart, I think about how much it it has been lost through migration and and in search for a better life like so many so many Latin American people migrate to the US for a better life 
and and then some of their culture is lost because they assimilate into U.S. American life. And that is something that is true for my mom's family, that they lost so much of their culture. And so I am actively unlearning the bullshit and, and picking up cultural practices that are very, you know, not welcome here in the U.S., you know. Like remembering our ancestors on Dia de los Muertos, for example, and mm. stewarding our ancestors' spirit into our home so that our ancestors can have can give us wisdom on what to do. Mm, I love that. That feels so so real. Uh I really feel that. Yeah. It's um yeah, we need to do that. We need to do we need to bring those those things back. Yeah. And it's not just, and it's not just Mexican culture. I mean, I think about, you know, your ancestors and, and what are your ancestors inviting you to do in these moments? You know, the benevolent ancestors who want you to be creating more justice in the world. Um, You know, we all have ancestors. That's one thing we have in common. And some of our ancestors don't want us to be doing the work of connection or stewarding justice, but there are some ancestors who want us to be doing that work. And so how can we be more connected in those practices? Yeah, that's right. This has been really incredible. I've loved this conversation. Thank you. It's one of my favorite conversations, I think. We've just covered so much ground, you know. It's, uh, yeah, and um, I really feel like we, we're kind of on the same, on the same path, doing doing similar work as well. It's really, um, it's really encouraging um, to say thank you. Oh, thank you, and I hope one day we can share a spot of tea together and maybe do a live podcast. That would be a great idea. I would love that. Absolutely love that. Yeah. Um, that'd be fantastic. And so where can people connect with you and your work? Yeah. So I'm on the web at irobin.com. That's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N.com. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram at irobin, the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N. And my DMs are open. I love being in conversation with people all over the world and 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 am in conversation just like i'm in conversation with you james and um, would love to hear from some of y'all and would love to continue the conversation fantastic thank you we'll have you back on the show for sure i think there's so much more we could talk about so um yeah thank you dr robin thanks Um, so much james uh, you're welcome and do connect with um with robin's work and Yeah, take care, everybody. Thanks for listening.